The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. you to turn once more to the first chapter of Ephesians. If you've not been with us, I'm not embarking on a lengthy study of Ephesians. I really had in mind what people might call a mini-series of just half of chapter one. Now, that might seem like not a very ambitious goal until you start to look at the passage involved. Verses one through 14 of Ephesians 1 are just a tremendous song of praise in which Paul the Apostle gives praise and blessing to God in particular ways. And we told you one of the things that's so remarkable here is that in the Greek, it's one sentence from verses 3 through 10. I almost have to stop for breath working through and reading this properly. There's so much. I wanted to bring it to you over five weeks. This is the fourth of five that because it so wonderfully encapsulates the sovereignty of God in his salvation. Listen as once more I read Ephesians 1. I'll begin at verse 1 through 10. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. May God bless our understanding of this, his word. Well, last week, unless you live under a rock somewhere, I think you absorbed from news, both local and national, the fact that the largest single lottery prize ever was being awarded and apparently has been awarded to an anonymous person in South Carolina. People everywhere lined up. People said, I never buy a ticket, but why not? And they forked over their money and made the prize bigger and bigger. And I would say even those of us who never buy lottery tickets, I can't speak for you, I'm never going to buy one, could not 
keep from fantasizing. Didn't you fantasize a little bit? What would a billion dollars be like even after income taxes? A billion with a B dollars. Wow. What could I do for myself, my family, my relatives? The church, of course. Don't forget. Uh, A charitable foundation. Doing good for the world at large. You certainly wouldn't use all that for yourself, I hope. Try as we might, most of us just can't grasp the weight of a billion dollars. It's a sum that exceeds, goes beyond all practical comprehension. Well, as I thought about that and kept hearing the news reports all week, I kept thinking of the text I was working on here and realized that our text in Ephesians is also about the payment of a staggering cost that far exceeds all human estimation or understanding. Just review briefly what we've seen in these verses so we're all on the same page. We've spent several weeks here already on one of the most amazing sentences ever penned, that single sentence in the, in the Greek. And even though English, of course, inserts beginnings of sentences and periods and commas and semicolons, I'll tell you, reading it is exhausting because it is a passage that just feels like it's pouring out something from God that really doesn't have any convenient handholds for you to get a hold of. Sometimes you can take a passage and say, oh, yeah, okay, I see point one of my sermon and point two and point three. Boy, this one just keeps going, and it just pulls you in. In one four, we saw Paul blessing God for his ultimate purpose in divine and mysterious choices of definite people to save an activity that it says here was conducted before time, before You and I were here before this planet was in its present form. The Father's aim, we're told there, was that finally there would be standing before him millions of people who could be presented to him as holy and blameless. Now that would require a definite change from the state of all people today. We are not holy and we are not without blame before God if the whole scriptures are to be believed. Then last time we heard from verse 6 that this change of us, this transformation to become holy and blameless comes as we are adopted as sons, and that's a generic term, through Jesus Christ who is the Father's most beloved son, the one who is simply called the beloved. One of the few places that occurs is there in the scripture here before us. Well, now we move on, and I want to focus mostly on seven and following here today, and and I'm not even going to get to much in ten because that starts to pick up the next time. But verse seven today speaks about another thing that Paul packs into this tightly packed doctrinal praise that he's giving when he says, we have redemption through the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of our trespasses. That pivotal phrase is our main concentration this morning. Now, if we were looking at verse 4, where we started there, we were talking about something that uh, we're told happened before the foundation of the world. But now, we're looking at something that happens for each and every one of us 
in real space and time history and that was based on a real space and time history event that happened in approximately 30 AD in Jerusalem, of all places, in what was regarded as the garbage dump. That was Golgotha, where they dumped the garbage and the dead animals and even dead people. I hope to draw three points out of this text, and and the last one is going to flow into next time. First of all, that you see the blood of Christ is the price of redemption for God's elect. Secondly, that you see that the item purchased is forgiveness of sins for those people. And thirdly, that God's grand design here reveals the lavishness of his grace. First and most substantial, we need to speak of the blood of Christ as the price of our redemption. And of course, the use of the word blood here is really just another way of saying he died. He bled and died. And blood is, of course, a a word that maybe grips you more than just having said he died. But the word redemption that's associated here is a very important theological term that many get away from in our world today. They want the salvation of Christ. They want what Jesus did. But, boy, they're not very sure they want blood. One small test you could use to check out the orthodoxy of any new hymnal you would examine would be look in the back where the authors of words are and look for the name of William Cooper. It's spelled C-O-W-P-E-R, but it's pronounced Cooper. And Cooper was an associate of uh, Amazing Grace, author Newton, but he was a man who wrote that hymn, There's a Fountain Filled with Blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. He was using extreme poetic license. Of course, the Bible doesn't say that Jesus was a fountain, but he's exaggerating perhaps, but in a right way, that it was the blood of Christ. Well, just look and see if that hymn is in a new hymn book that you might be examining. I'll guarantee you, you'll find hymn books where it is not. Why? Well, I don't want that bloody religion. Good grief. You still believe a thing like that? And there are many hymnals that have expunged that kind of language entirely. But in doing so, they've taken away also the value of the doctrine of the blood of Christ. Redemption by the blood of Christ speaks of obtaining something by payment of a price. What does it obtain and how? Well, I would imagine I'm addressing an audience that doesn't have a lot of commerce with pawn shops. If you've used a pawn shop just lately, you don't have to raise your hand. It's not a dishonorable act in and of itself, but I don't even know where there's a pawn shop around here to go to. There probably is one somewhere. Think of what you do at a pawn shop. You need cash. You need it right away for some reason. You can't pay the rent. You need food. And I have no money. I'm out of work. Well, you might say, ah, I have grandma's antique violin. I think it was estimated at one point in time of being worth $5,000. Maybe I can raise some money by taking grandma's antique violin to the pawn shop. Sure enough, you go in, say, what's this worth? What can you lend me on this? The man says, oh, certainly not more than $400. Well, the violin, of course, is worth much more than that, but that's what his loan is going to be. And so you take it and you sign a piece of paper that says they can keep your antique violin for a period of time and you can come back within that period of time and get it back by payment of a sum 
which of course includes a healthy profit for the shop. The item that temporarily was lost to you can become yours again if you redeem it. Well, the Bible declares that Jesus was a great redeemer. And what he bought were the souls of human beings who had been lost to God's fellowship and God's favor. And the shedding of the blood or the death of Christ was that which purchased men for God. Revelation 5.9 actually uses those words. It, it, it is addressing praise to Christ there in Revelation 5. And it says, you purchased men for God. Mark 10.45 says something very similar, quite familiar. It says Christ gave his life as a ransom for many. 1 Peter 1.19 states it. You heard it in your assurance statement this morning from the pastor. You were ransomed, it says, 1 Peter, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish or spot. Maybe we could have rewritten that for our culture and said, you were ransomed not with billion-dollar lottery payments, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, people have often committed a wrong understanding or interpretation of this idea of paying a ransom or redeeming people. And the one big idea that floats out there that many people just instinctively have because they don't know how to think otherwise is that a ransom, a redemption price, was paid to Satan. Isn't he, after all, the father of evil and the one who condemns us, the one who tempts us, the one who accuses us, the one who lies to us? So it must be to pay him to get him off our case that this happens. Well, if you are thinking that idea, we can see where logic might tell you that, but it is wrong. The Bible doesn't say that. There actually were quite a few early church fathers who thought that was the case. Even the great Augustine, who wasn't wrong about very many things, believed that for a while, but later wrote that he had seen that view was not correct. There are no texts that directly say God paid redemption or ransom to Satan. But you say, well, then who was it paid to and for what purpose? Well, it does imply that Satan is kind of our jailer uh, who keeps us under his control and throws us off track and makes us think wrongly about many things. So naturally it would be him who needs to be paid to let go of us. Well, I would say it to to you this way that's helped me to understand this one time. It's really fairly simple. If you think of the idea that you are in prison, you are being mistreated in prison, not fed very well, the guards are against you, they kick you around, they are cruel to you, they curse you, and boy, you just hate the guards, and you think, I want to get out of this prison. Well, would you, if you had a wealthy relative, would you say, quick, send $10,000 so I can pay this guard who will let me out of a federal prison. What's wrong with that? The guard can't let you out, can he? Because he is responsible to the law of the land and to a judge and jury that has put you in that prison. You're paying off the wrong person. You're paying off a mere functionary at the lower end of the scale. What you would need to do would be probably find a corrupt judge that would somehow hear your case or maybe an honest judge who would hear your case and, and find you innocent. And then the law 
would release you. Then the redemption would have gone somewhere where it would have been effective at the right source. Well, the prison guard isn't able to let you go. And in that sense, that's all Satan is. There's nowhere at all that Scripture says Satan was in a position to demand something from God. He's not. He doesn't have that kind of power or authority. But your problem is that you are under sin and the penalty of sin, and we all are, from our birth, being born from Adam who disobeyed, and we do the same as he did, rebel against God, go against his word, know what he says and do the opposite. But it isn't a guard that can help us out. He's a guard. That's all he is. We need to go to the top, to the source, where our imprisonment and our problem goes. A theologian named Wayne Grudem is a man of living today, wrote an excellent systematic theology. If any of you want to own a systematic theology, I would say get Wayne Grudem's, G-R-U-D-E-M. Grudem said this about this subject. He said, although we were in bondage, we Christians, that is, in bondage to sin and death and hell, Satan was not the one who had power to demand a ransom. It was not his holiness that is offended by our sin. We have to go to the one who's been offended and the one who can declare us innocent. Well, who is that? It was certainly God the Father whose holiness was violated by our sin. God's holiness was vandalized, ruined in a sense, or at least attacked by us, and he required that justice be done for that. He actually had wrath for that. That's a whole subject we could go into. God's wrath is not some antique subject that isn't uh, current anymore. Sin brings wrath. You sang in the hymn that Christ has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. Did you hear that? Excellent poetry. The, The law brings the wrath of God if we violate it. Mount Sinai was the source of the law. God's wrath for sin has to be somehow dealt with and quenched. Only God, you see, can pay the requirement for what is owed to whom? God. Wait a minute, this sounds like double talk. And yet, we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God. In Galatians, Paul wrote and said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming that curse for us. Galatians 4, he said, Christ was born under the law to redeem those that were under the law. It's a question of law and justice. God cannot be unjust. He cannot cease being holy. And because he's holy and just, those things have to be dealt with. And they are dealt with only by that which somehow comes in as a satisfaction so that the wrath and penalty that would otherwise be ours to receive is dealt with. When we ask the question, by whom or to whom is the ransom price of the death of Christ paid? The answer is the only possible answer. And it's a very ironic answer. The ransom was paid by God the Son to God the Father. Now, some people don't want that kind of theology, but that's the theology of the Bible. The blood of Christ was the price of our redemption. God needed that redemption price because of the injustice 
and the attack on his holiness that had to be balanced out. Well, let's go forward with it then to verse 7 that says, Redemption through the bloody death of Christ accomplished something, a very definite result. Our second point is this, what a Savior's blood purchased was forgiveness of sins. Sin, you see, the Bible teaches it, was a, it became a great obstacle in our path. It's as if we were down there in Florida with one of these recent hurricanes. You've seen the pictures of whole trees toppled across major roads. No cars could go through until somebody came through that could cut down a, a tree trunk with great thickness. You couldn't possibly get a car past it. Sin imposed an obstacle like that in our attempt to be acceptable to God and have a pathway to his heaven. We had to be forgiven. Sin had to get out of the way because sin had broken our fellowship with God just as Adam's fellowship was broken. And we had a problem. How does this get removed? Now, in fact, I'm going to say something. Uh, You can bring me, you know, there's there's a policy in our denomination. If you feel that your pastor's preaching heresy, that you can file charges against me to the presbytery, you might want to listen carefully because to some of you what I'm about to say is heresy. There's a problem here, and it's also a problem for God. You see, the most, in fact, probably the only problematic thing for God in the universe is how does he forgive? How does God, with perfect justice, perfect holiness, perfect law, how does he just set all that aside? It's like saying, I'm no longer God. I'm I'm just going to say, all right, you know, sin, that's a, that's a difficulty. What am I going to do? My law is absolute. My holiness is absolute. I can't just step away from it and, and discard it like taking off a coat or something. How does an all-holy God forgive the vast blot of human sin? Many of you, like many people in our society, just assume, well, what are you talking about? That isn't difficult. God is all-powerful. Doesn't he just wink at it and say, oh, yes, I made a lot of rules once, but let's just forget about those. Ah, just come on. I choose to forgive. You and you and you and you and you and you and you all get a get-out-of-jail-free card just because I'm God and I can do it. Is that what you think God does in granting us forgiveness? That he lets his holiness and, and righteousness and law and justice all just be laid aside so that willy-nilly he can say, it's okay for you to sin. I'm God. I forgive just because I forgive. No, it doesn't work that way. God's justice. You know, the great symbol for justice out there in our, our land, in law schools and courthouses is a scale of justice, right? The idea that the, the pans, uh, what is put in the scale has to balance out. I guess is the idea. Well, think of that for a minute. I think pictorially it helps me that here is the the great scale of universal justice. The pans are gigantic in size. The scale is gigantic. And on one side is an ugly mountain of trash and garbage and smelly waste that is our sin, our violations of truth, our lies, our deceptions. All the ways we've violated God's commandments are like Mount Everest, boom, the pan on that side is weighed down by a huge weight of our sin. What's on the other pan? If God is going to be just and be able to forgive, something has to be put in the other pan, right? 
to cause a reversal of that huge weight that's on one side. What can we possibly put on that side that would be greater than the whole mass of human sin? Can you think of anything? Well, the Bible thought of something. The perfect righteousness of the God-man, Jesus Christ, outweighs by far the way an elephant outweighs a mouse all the injustice, all the wrong, all the violence, all the shooters in Jewish temples who go in and wantonly kill people. The righteousness of God in Jesus Christ is in the other side of the scale. And ladies and gentlemen, that scale changes dramatically and drastically because that righteousness far, 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 not just a little bit, you know, not not like, okay, our sin was a $1 billion debt and Jesus had uh, $1.1 billion to put on his side. No, sir. What Jesus brought to the balance sent the other side flying into the air because of Scripture says he did everything to offer himself the perfect sacrifice. Hebrews says he offered it once for all. He doesn't have to offer it every day or every time you go to a confession booth or something like that. Once for all, his perfect righteousness stood in place on that scale and balanced it so that in the eyes of God today, those who trust in that transaction of Christ are what? Our passage already told us, holy and blameless. In actual fact, we're still sinners, but we're holy and blameless. Luther had, a, Luther had a statement. He loved Latin. He liked to throw it around. He said, Simul justus et peccator. We are at one time sinners and justified. Sinners in this life, but in God's eyes and in the final day, we are justified, entirely holy and blameless. I'll give you this in one sentence. If you take notes, he said, I can't follow what you just talked about. Point two is summarized in one sentence. I could have saved myself a lot of breath. One sentence, here it is. God himself has provided the payment that God himself required. That's not nonsense. That's the Christian gospel, amazing as it is. Third, and in closing today, I'm not going to really finish where verse 10 goes, but in 8 through 10 here, we see the lavishness of God's grace, revealing the deep mystery of his will and his total plan. We, we started hearing here of something that God determined to do before the foundation of the world. The God who owned creation, who made it. The God who owns every gold nugget in every gold mine yet undiscovered on this planet. The God who owns every diamond in every South African mine. He owns a mountain of diamonds. Try to imagine the wealth of God. A God who made the star clusters in other galaxies. His wealth is beyond our even beginning to talk about it. It's limitless. And Paul is saying it's like his grace that we see that he did this thing, being owed the payment that was required and paying the payment. He, the great God, lavished his grace in giving the most expensive thing he could give, the life of his dear son to become flesh and then be completely mistreated and whipped and scourged and spat upon and killed 
This is the big plan that God was working on before the foundation of the world. The great purpose of God is, is visible here in lavish ways. You know, I was reading Luke this past week. Luke 24 is the only chapter that tells this well-known incident that happened in Jerusalem and its environs the day that we call Easter. It tells us that two people who were interested in Christ and had followed him to some extent, we don't know their names, lived in a town called Emmaus outside of Jerusalem. It even specifies they were walking from Jerusalem that evening to go home seven miles. It struck me because my home is almost exactly seven miles from, the, from this church. And I was thinking about what if I was walking with someone from here to the west side of Lidditz and we were talking about Jesus and, and what happened and the fact that people had seen him alive. And, and, and then somebody joined us along Lidditz Pike and they got into the conversation and said, well, what are, you, what are you fellas talking about here? Tell me about this. And they said, what, you don't know? That Jesus, who we thought was a great prophet, was killed, but now, today, this morning, people have reported him alive. Don't you know about this? And, and Jesus, it, it says in the text that they were kept from recognizing him. And he went on to talk and he explained to them, it says there in Luke 24, that the Christ must suffer all these things before entering into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them what all the scriptures said pertaining to himself. He explained to them the big plan, the big strategic plan of God, what was going on here from Old Testament to New, that God had determined that because he required payment, he would also pay. And this was God's great plan. Boy, can you imagine what it would have been to be in that conversation? I would trade not just four years of seminary, but 40 years of my life to have been in that conversation. And I've heard our Lord tell about his big plan that the Father had devised with his cooperation. The ultimate purpose, which was to choose those who he would redeem in Christ, to adopt them as his children, and then... Have the beloved son make a priceless sacrifice that it couldn't even be estimated for how much it was worth and that his expensive blood, the blood of the beloved son of God, would bring it all to conclusion by paying the debt that was owed. That's the ultimate plan of God that's here. It's, it's both fascinating and fantastic, folks. You contemplate it, you try to estimate what it's all about, and you can only say, wow. You can only say what the hymn writer said, my sins, oh, oh, the bliss of a glorious thought. My sin, not part of it, but the whole of it, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Do you estimate that this mysterious, grand plan and purpose of God from all eternity is adequate to save you? I speak to somebody who might possibly be saying, you know, okay, Christianity's pretty fascinating. It's kind of complicated, but you know, I'm, I'm just kind of holding out my commitment because maybe some other religion's got a better plan. Maybe some other religion has a simpler way or a more logical way 
This thing about God paying what, to God what was owed, I don't quite get that. So I'll kind of hold out until I see what all the other religions have to say. Well, please come and let me know, would you? Please, I'm very sincere. I'll take this robe off and quit the ministry in five minutes if you show me a more adequate plan for God or anyone to deal with the problem of redemption. God has dealt with it. And if you have claimed that priceless plan of God and you're going forward in faith saying, I don't understand it all. I don't understand all that God chose people before history. I'm not sure my intellect agrees with it. Nobody asked you to, to agree with it. But you can accept it and believe it because God has said it. And if you've claimed this plan of God as your redemption, then I give you a last verse that I haven't read yet. 1 Corinthians 6.20 Because this is true of you, believer. You are now not your own. You don't belong to yourself. You think you do. The world all thinks, oh, hey, I belong to me. What I decide to do is me and nobody else's business. Nope. God's word says, as a believer in Christ, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Think of the price. And then glorify God in your body. Amen. Father, truly this whole chapter of Ephesians is a wonder. And men argue over it, theologians battle over it, and try to say, well, that isn't credible, well, that doesn't agree with my choice, and what happens to my choice, and all the things we say. Father, help us to stand back in wonder and amazement at this plan that you, Father, Son, and Spirit, worked out before the world. We bless your name. We bless our Savior's name. Holy Spirit, we bless you for awakening us to believe this wonderful thing. In Jesus' name, amen.